Open your Bibles, if you would now, to John chapter 3. Once again, John chapter 3 this morning as we get back into this glorious text of Scripture that we all know and we love so well. John chapter 3 in your bulletins this morning, the message is titled and not inappropriately so, the foundation for the new birth, part two, or we could call it aptly as well, the man at midnight, as we begin to look now this morning at the man Nicodemus. Let's pray before we do. Father, please help us now. We've come before your word. What a gift this word is to us. Father, it's a very act of grace that you have decided and chosen by Your sheer grace to make Yourself known. There is no other way that we would know You. And so what we hold this morning is an act of grace where You have revealed Yourself to us that we might know You. What an undeserved privilege is ours this morning. Father, I pray this morning that as we come before Your Word that our knowledge of You would not be in academic fact only, but that our knowledge of You would be experiential through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us Christ. Reveal Your Son in all of His glory, and all of His saving power. And Father, may hearts and minds by the work of Your Spirit be turned to the Lord Jesus, always in faith, some for the first time. For those who already believe, May our faith be strengthened and deepened. And so, Father, minister to us now in Your Word, by Your Spirit, about Your Son, for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read now in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now we've all been in this position before. We sit down to watch some historical movie and we're already filled with some great sense of anticipation. And then these words slowly scroll across a darkened screen with sounds in the background of that saga that that heighten our senses. The words go something like this. What you are about to see is a true account. Only now, in our case, through the eye of our mind, the names have not been changed to protect anyone. We have the full revelation of this account. And as this account opens and as the screen brightens and comes into focus, we find ourselves, just previous to the text that we read this morning, viewing a scene of a crowd that is stirred. People are are running. Animals are bleeding. There's the sound of metal coins falling off of tables and clanking upon the stone foundation. 
And out of the cacophony of chaos comes a voice of a man. This is the backdrop. This is the precursor to what we are being shown in Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. This is what has just immediately preceded it. It's a storm. The context of our text this morning comes in the midst of a storm. It's not an atmospheric storm. It's not a meteorological storm. But a storm more massive than anything that could be relegated to this world and to this life. It is a storm that does not carry water. It does not carry wind. It does not carry lightning or hailstones. It is a storm that carries the weight of eternity. Blowing men toward eternal life or eternal death. At stake are men and women's lives, boys and girls' lives. What had just moments ago in the text of Scripture, if you're reading through the Gospel of John in one sitting, what just a second ago had been the comfortable confines of an established norm, a a way of life, a religious system, sacred and secure to the people who loved it, has now been turned upside down and absolute mayhem incurs. For Nicodemus... In the text this morning, in the seeming blink of an eye, his entire religious structure had been shaken and fractured. As Jesus cleanses the temple and sets thinking right where it had been perverted and misguided. The future and the course of their future, like rivers, find their course and flow altered by what happens here in this account. To their shame, Nicodemus nor any of the other religious leaders and certainly not the followers saw the storm coming. They'd had years of warning. They had had years of preparation for the advent of this storm, for the shaking of the foundation and the presence and the coming of the Messiah. And yet, none of them saw it. Not even their most revered leaders. And this morning... The sun has now set on that scene. Standing in the middle of the chaos and all of the the post-aftermath of that day in the temple stands the very cause of the storm. The very point of the storm. And yet the very hope in the midst of that storm. He is the man, Jesus Christ. And so against the backdrop of Jesus upsetting the religious sensibilities and systems of the Jews comes Nicodemus, one of the most revered men in Israel to question Jesus in our text this morning. And so we find two questions this morning. Two questions that help us to understand the mission and the person of Jesus, the Messiah. So would you look at the first question with me this morning? In verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 3, there is the question of identity. There's a question of identity. The first question or dilemma that is presented in this dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus is a back and forth, a question about the identity of both men. And as both men come into sharp relief and sharp contrast in our eyes this morning as we see both of them, part of the question is highlighted by the contrast between the two men. 
between Nicodemus and Jesus. And the text, first of all, points us to this man named Nicodemus. What is Nicodemus? Who is Nicodemus? The questions and gravity of this scene and of the truth surrounding what John is going to give us in the rest of chapter 3, a brilliant exposition on the new birth that leads to new life are accentuated by this man named Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit inspiring this account so that we understand better the truth of the new birth comes through the identity, at least in part, this contrast of Nicodemus over and against Jesus. Now, if you're like me, I, I, you, you look at the name Nicodemus and you, your mind immediately begins to go back into its catalog and to say, no, no, who is Nicodemus? Where else do we find Nicodemus? And the honest answer is, not very many places. We, we know relatively very little about this man in terms of how often he is mentioned and yet where he is mentioned. We find great information and very helpful information. If you want to read more about this man, you can go to John chapter 7 and again John chapter 19. And you find Nicodemus there in those places again in addition to the text this morning. And as I said, what we do know, even from this brief encounter and these three short verses, help us to grasp the enormity of the entirety of John chapter 3. Notice the text. There was a man of the Pharisees. We know this about Nicodemus. He came from the sect of the Pharisees. Thus, he was a religious leader in Israel. The Pharisees being one of the chief religious sects. Beyond merely being a religious leader, notice what the text says. He is not only a, of a man of the Pharisees, but he is also a ruler of the Jews. Beyond just being a Pharisee and a religious leader, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. The religious council, the governing political body of Israel. Made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and the elders of Israel. Nicodemus is not only a religious leader, he is also a political leader. Thus, he has much influence in the world in which he lived. Personally, when we get down to verse 10, we find that Nicodemus is also one of the leading intellectual leaders of Israel. Jesus challenges Nicodemus by way of rebuke, and he says, Are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you do not know these things? He is a chief theologian of sorts, a, a leading intellectual, one to whom people look to in order to understand theology. And so Nicodemus, in gathering these truths about who he is, we understand this, he is a very influential man. When Nicodemus speaks, people listen. Where Nicodemus leads, people follow. And so Nicodemus is a man who has everything to lose in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it's not a casual meeting. Nicodemus can literally be disowned from every part of his life. He could be removed from the Pharisees. He could be 
rejected by the Sanhedrin. He could no longer find himself employed as a teacher in Israel, making his livelihood. Nicodemus is a man with literally everything to lose, and from a human perspective, nothing to gain by coming to Jesus. But notice I said, from a human perspective. In reality, the, the, the facts are reversed. He has everything to, come, to gain by coming to Jesus and nothing to lose by crossing the world in which he lived. These are the realities that Nicodemus is facing as he comes to Jesus. And yet, despite the great risk-reward paradigm that Nicodemus must have been grappling with, something propels him to come to Jesus. Some have speculated that Nicodemus comes as a representative of the Pharisees. In other words, just just a a head to gather information about Jesus, kind of like the Pharisees did in John chapter 1, where they come out to meet John the Baptist and to find out more about John the Baptist and by proxy about this ministry of the man John was preaching about. But I think if you're observant in the text, as I hope you will be, when you come to verse 2, it's obvious that Nicodemus is not on a professional errand. Because we notice the time of day Nicodemus comes. This man, meaning Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. He comes under cloak of darkness. In all likelihood, he comes alone. And he comes to the feet of this man, Jesus. I think that's further heightened. If you will, turn over to John chapter 7. Just quickly, I mentioned that we meet Nicodemus there again. Look at verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and Bethlehem and the village where David was? So division occurred in the crowd because of him, meaning Jesus. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? And so we, we get a hint of what was no doubt in Nicodemus's mind and why he came at night. The Pharisees do not have a favorable response to anyone who comes to Jesus to learn. In fact, they're rejecting everything that Jesus is. Yet Nicodemus comes at night. Knowing this would be the reaction of his fellow Pharisees, Jesus I mean, I'm sorry, Nicodemus comes to Jesus on a personal errand, on a personal fact-finding mission to encounter this man who has so intrigued him and disrupted the nation around him. 
On the one hand, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not knowing. Verse 10. Very clearly puts Nicodemus in an awkward position by saying, wait, aren't you the teacher and yet you don't know? Shouldn't you know, Nicodemus? Haven't you read your own Bible? How humiliating must that have been for Nicodemus? And yet, and yet, we have to look at Nicodemus and we have to, to give Nicodemus some credit. At least he came. At least he wanted to encounter Jesus. He wanted to know more about Jesus. Nicodemus is coming because he's willing to admit there are things he does not yet know. I would say that Nicodemus, as much as an unregenerate lost man can be, is a man who possesses some degree of humility. At least he comes. Is his faith fully formed? No. Is is he where he ought to be? No. But does he come as he should? Yes. Yes, he does. Nicodemus is simply trying to connect the dots. Notice what he says in verse 2. I think this is so fascinating. This man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night and says to him, Rabbi, we know. Rabbi, we know that there is something that is so tied up in these few words that are really impressive. Nicodemus comes and he is willing to admit that that everything he had read about the Messiah seems to fit Jesus. And remember, that's John's point. That's John's gospel. John is not an argumentative fellow. He is not taking Jesus and trying to prove to us that Jesus is Messiah. Now, listen, you've got to believe it. Jesus is God. Jesus is Messiah. That's not John's approach at all. You know what John's approach is? Remember, here's the Messiah. Here is who he will be. Here is what he will be like. Now, you tell me who fits that description. And Nicodemus says, I think it's you. We know. We know. Uh, uh, me and my friends, maybe they're with him, maybe they're not. But we know, Jesus, that you have come from God at minimum as a teacher. For no one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. Nicodemus I think should be commended rather than scorned at this point. For who of us would have done any better? Let me ask you a question. How are you doing any better? Are you willing to shun everything? Are you willing to risk everything in order to come to Jesus? Are you willing to lay everything aside in order to come to Jesus? Would you have been Nicodemus in that moment? Nicodemus comes and Nicodemus is starting to connect the dots and starting to say, no, wait a minute. We know there is something about you that sounds very, very familiar, Jesus. And I simply need some answers to these questions. Now, I want you to notice a subcontrast here between John chapter 3 and John chapter 7. I want you to notice a contrast between Jesus and religion. And here's the contrast. In John chapter 7, 
when the Pharisees detected that there was any hint that someone was starting to approve of Jesus, what was their response? Hostility. Are you convinced? Are you ready to follow Him? But I want you to notice Jesus' response. Nicodemus, Nicodemus. He doesn't shun Nicodemus. He doesn't tell Nicodemus to leave because he doesn't have it all together. He doesn't tell Nicodemus to quit bothering him with, with insolent questions when he should have known better. No, Jesus does what? He sits down and he has an extended conversation with a man who is seeking truth. What a contrast. Here's the harsh men that Nicodemus is used to dealing with. And yet here's Jesus who even now, late at night, when he could have been irritated, willingly entertains the most important questions in all of humanity, in all of time, in all the world. Jesus, who are you? The Pharisees were completely opposite. In John chapter 12, verse 42, we get another glimpse at the world Nicodemus is from. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, meaning the Sanhedrin, believed in him, meaning Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Not allowed to worship. Not allowed to go, in their view, into the very presence of God any longer. Not allowed to sacrifice. Not allowed to participate in the life of Israel. Because remember, Israel was not just a country. It was a, it was a religious system that was all intertwined. And to be put out of the synagogue is to be put out of society. And so there were some of the rulers, and Nicodemus understands this. And again, it's why he comes at night, I believe, and no doubt he sees the contrast. This man, Jesus, doesn't reject me when I question like the Pharisees would. Rather, he embraces the question, unthreatened by the questions, and he answers them. Another aspect of Nicodemus's coming should warn our respect in that he understands, again, the risk, and he comes anyway. Now, when we read about Nicodemus coming at darkness, John most often uses the term darkness to refer to the world system, to sin, to immorality, etc., etc. That's not John's use here. John is pointing out the picture of a man who is struggling. A man who is risking everything as he comes to Jesus. Even though he knows it would be injurious to him if he is caught doing so. So in the midst of Jesus cleansing the temple and the entire system seeming to collapse around him, he finds Jesus and he comes. Some of you might be questioning his courage. Well, if he really believed Jesus was who he was and if he really was willing to follow Jesus, why didn't he just come in broad daylight? Like any of us are the bastions of courage. We all struggle. We all wrestle. We've all failed to witness to Christ, to bear witness for Christ, to be 
what we should be at all times. So how many of us are so driven to Christ that he's the first one we turn to when our system implodes? Often we turn to ourselves, don't we? Not Nicodemus. He at least turns to Jesus. How many of us see sin as the problem, Christ is the answer, and we're willing to go to Him at every turn, even at the potential for great cost to ourselves? Nicodemus was. And so we have enough information, I believe, here in these first two verses to give us a really good understanding as to the identity of Nicodemus. And now we're turned to the identity of Jesus in verse 2. Would you look at verse 2 with me? Nicodemus professes profound truth. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is saying what he believes in that moment to be true. And what Nicodemus believes to be true in that moment is greatly profound. In fact, I wish that we could get more people in more churches today to believe and profess what Nicodemus professes. Nicodemus realizes the grandeur of Jesus. He realizes the glory of Jesus. He's not playing games with Jesus. Jesus is not there to meet Nicodemus' felt needs. Nicodemus understands Jesus very likely is God of very gods. He is God of very God. He is God in the flesh. And He treats Him with the reverence that He deserves. Now John, for his part in writing this Gospel, is unique because nobody runs as quickly to the identity of Jesus as John does. All the other Gospels get there, but they get there taking their time. But not John. John, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, was the Word. So we know immediately who we're dealing with. And here again is that hallmark of John's writing. He gets to Jesus as quickly as possible, and he shows us how he is doing that even through the account with Nicodemus. So that Nicodemus, through this interaction, can point out to us the things about Jesus that we need to know. That we need to embrace. And how does he do that? Notice what he says to him. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Unlike Nicodemus... Jesus is the teacher, not just of Israel, but of the world. Jesus is the teacher of all teachers. There is no greater teacher than Jesus. There's no greater hope than Jesus. There's no other truth than Jesus. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth. And as a result, there is no other life but that which is found in Jesus. And Nicodemus is starting to to grapple with this and wrestle with this because he thinks this is the case. It is fascinating in all the pride of the Pharisees, which would have included Nicodemus. He's not a sinless man. In all of their learning and all of their exalted status as the religious leader and all of the years of climbing up the religious ladder, 
It's fascinating that Nicodemus speaks as he does. Notice what he says to Jesus. He addresses him as rabbi. What does it mean to call someone rabbi? We might think it's just a, you know, a title you throw around like saying, hey, brother. But it's not. To call someone a rabbi in Jesus' day meant that he had gone through a specific school or a series of schools and earned his academic, if you will, credentials in order to be called a rabbi. Rabbis were a specific title for a specific function. And Jesus has never been to their schools. Jesus has never sought their affirmation. He's never sought a diploma or a degree from the school of the rabbis. And yet Nicodemus approaches him and says, Rabbi. That's dangerous in itself. If anyone else of the Pharisees had heard him refer to Jesus as a rabbi, that was enough for being disowned. And yet he is correct. He gives to Jesus the title that is reserved for the select few. And yet Jesus, as we look at the text, notice he goes on. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Not only is Jesus one of the select few, but if what Nicodemus suspects is true, Jesus is the one. And he's trying to feel this out. He's trying to to determine if this is indeed the case. No, he has no formal training, but Nicodemus suspects what Jesus has is much greater than the formal training he himself possesses. He understands that if Jesus is who he thinks he is, then Jesus is the supreme teacher. Notice the qualification that he gives. Because you have come from God. Knowingly or unknowingly, he ascribes to Jesus the title of being the source of all knowledge. You're not just a teacher. You've come from God who Himself is truth. From whom all knowledge flows. What a pinprick this is to the balloon of self-sufficiency. That we think we can derive our own truth. You see, if you... If you if you think postmodernism is a new thing, it's really not. It's a, it's a fallen thing. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There is no subjective truth. There is God and God's truth, or there are lies. One of the two. No equivocation. And if Jesus is a teacher from God, that means Jesus is the very embodiment of truth itself. The very creator of truth, from whom all truth comes, as Francis Schaeffer would have said, that which is truly true comes only from Jesus. And Nicodemus is starting to confess this. Did he know what he was saying? Probably not. Not in its full weight. But he understands something. It's an absolute truth for Nicodemus, and it's an absolute truth for us today. It is not what you know, for Nicodemus knew everything a man could know. It's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. 
It is knowing the living Christ. It is knowing God of very God. God in flesh. That's what ultimately matters. It doesn't matter how much learning we have. It doesn't matter how many books we read. If we don't live in this book and know the God of this book, we know nothing. Because all truth is derived from Him. And Nicodemus is confessing that here. You are a teacher sent from God. The very source of truth. And so Nicodemus is recognizing something about Jesus and he says the quiet part out loud. You are truth. Therefore, all the words you speak are truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word that proceeds from your mind is truth. Oh, how profound Nicodemus is in this moment, even though he probably didn't realize it. But notice what he says. He says, we know. This is the the word not for academic knowledge, not for facts, but this is the word for knowledge that comes by experience. It's what Proverbs might call wisdom or discernment. He says, we know I have experienced that there is something different in you and I am assured of that. You can't convince me otherwise. I know. I know, Jesus, you are different i'm assured of this i have academic knowledge but in you i find experiential knowledge i find knowledge for life i find the knowledge that i really seek and so nicodemus becomes a a man who is convinced as he confesses who jesus is the source of truth brothers and sisters do we realize that this morning Do we realize that there is no truth outside of Jesus Christ? There is no truth outside of God's Word. And everything else that might appear to be true ultimately has to find its foundation in God and in God's Word. May we be like Nicodemus, so convinced. And so Jesus is revealed as not only the teacher of Israel, but of the world, because he is the source of truth. But he is also a man of compassion and patience. Again, I refer to the time of night, the time of day, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Now here's one thing you have to realize about Jesus, and if you don't, you're, you're missing the point. Jesus was not a spiritual hippie. He didn't just walk around all day with not much going on, enjoying life. Jesus' days were busy. He worked hard. He often, we find him in the Gospels, he's exhausted at the end of the day, so much so that he falls asleep in a ship in the middle of a storm. You've got to be pretty tired to do that. So Jesus works hard. He is a man whose days are filled with strenuous activity and unlimited demands upon his person. certainly by this time of night, remember, Jesus is not only truly God, He is also truly man. He got tired. And by this time of day, He would have been really tired and ready for rest and ready for bed. And yet it is that that moment Nicodemus comes. Now, how many of you, if I showed up at your house at 1130 at night and said, hey, let's have a deep theological conversation. How many of you would be like, oh, most of you. I know there's a few night owls in here, but most of you would be, Brian, 
can you come back tomorrow? We'll even feed you. We know you'll come back then. But if you'll come back, we can have a discussion another time. That's not Jesus. Jesus takes a man who's searching. Even when it is physically inconvenient for him. And he begins to talk to Nicodemus, not in a patronizing way. He goes straight for the heart of the matter and he talks to Nicodemus about his soul. What compassion. He doesn't just, you know, give him a few things that make him feel good and send him on his way. He goes to the most dense, the most meaningful, the most weighty matter of theology, Nicodemus's own soul and its need for the new birth. What a Savior. Full of compassion and patience. But notice he's also a man of authority. Nicodemus has rightly determined that Jesus, again, is not just another self-proclaimed prophet or teacher. Notice what he says. We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus is a man of authority. Nicodemus realizes that what Jesus has done, only God can do. Therefore, Jesus must be from God. Emphatically, we would translate this just as Nicodemus says, God is with him. God is partnering with him. God is with him in the most intimate way. Say what you will about Nicodemus. He's thinking in the right direction. He's moving in the right direction. And he's beginning to correctly assemble the puzzle. He's watching it come together and he's saying, wait a minute, I think I know where this piece belongs. Let me bring that from the Old Testament and plug that in right here. Yeah, it fits perfectly. No, no, there was, I remember this as well. Let's see, yep, that fits too. And he begins to slowly assemble. In John chapter 8, verses 17 through 19, we read this. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answers, you neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Nicodemus is getting really close. No one does what you've done unless God is with him. And we know who God's going to be with, and that's the Messiah. Nicodemus is getting close. John chapter 7, verses 45 through 46. Again, I read it earlier, but the Pharisees are examining the officers. And they're asking them, why did you not arrest this man? And bring him to us that we may try him, find him guilty, and then deal with him the way we deal with false prophets. Stone him. According to the law. And notice what the officers say in response. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Jesus is busy about the work of ministry and a similar situation occurs and it says that the crowds, including the religious leaders, were scandalized They were amazed. That's not good amazement. That's bad amazement there 
as in someone slapping them in the face. They were scandalized. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Oh, Nicodemus knows the scribes and Pharisees, and he looks at Jesus and says, you're nothing like that. You teach with authority. You teach with authority. Why is that? Because there had never been a man like him. The very Word of God. Think about this. Jesus doesn't just speak words. Jesus is the Word. John chapter 1, verse 1. From the very beginning, Jesus possesses authority that can only come from God. The very revelation of God is speaking, working. Now here's the deal. The Pharisees could speak. Many of them were orators of the first order. They could deliver a speech. They could rouse passions that lie just beneath the surface of people. They could excite people at times. But nobody could teach like Jesus that actually moved a man's heart to come at midnight at the risk of losing everything. There is something different about this man's teaching. We'll learn later in the Gospels. And the disciples make the observation, who is this man that when he speaks, even the winds, the waves... Obey Him. And I've said it before, let me say it again in that case. It's one thing to command the wind to stop. We've all seen a storm blow up on a body of water and stir up the water and waves are everywhere. Uh, I've been through two hurricanes. You see it. You, you, You see what it does and it takes a long time for those waves to lay down. But when Jesus comes, He not only stops the winds, He stops the waves immediately. Nobody does that but God. Why? He possesses authority. Nicodemus says, when you speak, things happen. Hearts are moved. I'm here as proof of that. But He's also a man of truth. Nicodemus understands that. Jesus is Speaking truth. What convinces Nicodemus is perceived as a threat to the Pharisees. Think about that. What is life to one is death to the other. What Nicodemus sees as good news, the Pharisees see as bad news. Why? Because truth divides. Jesus wasn't there to affirm everyone. That's what we learn of his identity. He's not a teacher who's there to affirm everyone and validate every opinion in every religious system. No, Jesus is there to speak truth, which will draw some and it will push others away. Well, thankfully, Nicodemus is one in his acknowledgement of Jesus as a teacher, as Jesus as a compassionate and patient man, of Jesus as a source of authority, is accepting of that truth. Nicodemus wants to know what that truth is. Clearly, whatever Jesus has to communicate is important, and Nicodemus needs to know what it is. 
The signs that Nicodemus refers to here simply give material to support to the message that Jesus has been sent to deliver. Do we realize that? That that, that Jesus in, in His ministry on earth did signs and wonders not just to do signs and wonders, but to validate what He was saying? You're robbing yourself if you're focused on the signs and the miracles. They are there simply to point you to something greater, and that is the saving truth that Jesus came and lived a perfect life for us so that He may take our sins and die upon the cross for us to be raised from the dead for us. If you think the signs and wonders are the focal point, you are robbing yourself. They are just the footnote of what Jesus really came to do. They are the footnote that validates and supports His, his, his authority to do and say what He did. In John chapter 6, verses 11-14, through 14, we read this. And I want you to particularly notice verse 14 in the end and how this concludes. Because... As I said, if all we are focused on is the miracle and the sign, then we're lost. And I think this is a good way to diagnose even our own thinking, our own hearts. Jesus then took the loaves. Oh, here we go. I know this story. What a great story. The lad, the loaves, and the lunch. Right? Jesus took the loaves, and after He had given thanks, He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And, they were, and when they were filled, Jesus said to His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and they filled the twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And that's where we stop. And we say, wow! Look what Jesus did. Look what Jesus did. He took five loaves and a couple of fish and he multiplied them and it fed, you know, it's 5,000 men. It's probably a lot more than that when you count women and children. And he feeds all of them and they have enough left over that they take up a collection, put it in baskets, and, and we tell our kids that story and we rehearse that in Sunday school and we get so excited about it and that's pretty neat stuff. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story follows in verse 14. Therefore, when people saw the sign he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. This is him. This is the one. This is the, now how many of us, when we tell that story, our kids go to verse 14 and say, now let's talk about the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about what this means in relation to Jesus as Messiah, as Jesus has promised one. We often forget that, even in our own thinking. That's the point of the feeding of the 5,000, that they would see this and recognize this. And so Nicodemus begins to make the connection that what Jesus says and what Jesus does work together. Other Jews put it together in John 7.31, but many of the crowd believed in him and they were saying when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? 
In other words, this is the Messiah. Jesus is doing this. This must be this must be the Messiah. They're putting the pieces together. The prophets that Jesus is mentioned as being both in John 6 and in John 7 were fundamentally preachers. Think about the Old Testament prophets for a moment. They were preachers, weren't they? They weren't soothsayers. They weren't fortune tellers. They weren't foretelling the future. They were primarily forthtelling the truth. That's what Jesus is doing. In fact, when you go back to the thing that no doubt provokes Nicodemus to say, okay, I've got to go. At the cleansing of the temple, what was Jesus doing? Well, not anything anybody liked, but he was declaring truth. Nicodemus says, I need to go to this man. He speaks as one having authority, and he has signs that back up that authority. But but what I'm most interested in is not what he does. What I'm most interested in is what he has to say. You see, because Jesus doesn't do any signs for the rest of John chapter 3 for Nicodemus. In fact, at a time when Nicodemus might be thinking, hey, I need this miraculous sign of being put back in my mother's womb that I might be born again. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't work some strange miracle. Jesus does what? He preaches truth. Truth about Nicodemus' heart. A truth about his saving work. A truth that all lost men and women need to hear. Jesus is truth. He speaks only truth. He speaks it from a point of authority. And that, brothers and sisters, is what makes him the teacher. Not of Israel, but of the world. That's what makes him the head of this church. That's what makes his word by which he mediates his rule in this church in his physical absence so important we need to hear from the teacher the truth and all of the truth we don't have time to jump into the next section which is verse three the question of content that was the question of identity but the question of content comes next And I want you to notice one thing, and I want you to meditate on this. Okay, will you do this for me as you go home this week? As you go to work this week? I want you to think about this. Look at verse 3. Nicodemus, notice, doesn't really ask any questions, does he, in verses 1 and 2. Nicodemus is making statements. He's not asking any questions. But notice what Jesus does in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. One commentator says it this way. The Lord answered not his words, but his thoughts. Nicodemus doesn't ask the question. But Jesus gives the answer. Nicodemus is not even sure what to ask, I would have I would just go out on a limb and say, I bet Nicodemus doesn't even know how to ask the question. (laughs) But Jesus knows how to give the answer. 
You want proof that he's God? He doesn't answer your questions. He answers your thoughts. He knows your thoughts before you do. He can answer your thoughts in ways you didn't even know you needed an answer for. And he can do so in such a way that he goes straight to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is your heart. Who is Jesus? Who are you? And what did He come to do for you? He came to change you. He came to change you by redeeming you. By rescuing you from your sin. From your depravity. From your separation from God. Jesus came. And He answers our thoughts. Even when we can't express them. Even when we don't know we have a need, Jesus is there with the right answer. Some of you here this morning may have an academic knowledge of Jesus. You've read the stories. You've heard the stories. You've grown up, maybe even in the church. And it's so familiar sounding to you. But you've never come like Nicodemus. You've never come wanting to really know the truth behind the stories. The truth behind the man. You don't know that your sin is the problem and Christ is the answer. May I say to you, come like Nicodemus. Understand that, that we are all born lost in our sins. Dead in our sins without hope in this world or in the world to come. And Jesus came to redeem sinners. Notice Jesus doesn't deal with the Pharisees to help them. He deals with the Pharisees to condemn them. But to a humble man who understands he has needs and Jesus may well be the... Jesus deals with him. Jesus will deal with you. To all who call upon Him, He says, I will save them. This is the good news. If God is working in your heart this morning, you say, I have never come to a point in my life where I have experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ for my sins, to be forgiven of my sins, to be given a hope and a future, then today is the day for you. Cry out to the Lord Jesus. Come to the Lord Jesus. Save me. I need to be born anew. I need a new heart, a new life. Save me, Lord. And He will. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is God so working in your heart that you desire to call upon Him? Call upon Him today. Christian, for those of us who have known the Lord for any length of time at all, let us never become dull to the realities and the glories of Jesus who saves like this. Never allow it to grow cold or old news to you. Always read the accounts of John chapter 3, fresh and new. What a glorious Savior. That He would condescend to us in patience, in truth, in authority, just like He did to Nicodemus. May our worship increase because we realize these things to be true 
about him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were willing to take upon yourself our flesh, our humanity, and to come and to live in our place the perfect life we have never lived and could never live. And having lived perfectly in our place, you died perfectly in our place. Because you had no sins of your own to be punished, you allowed yourself to carry our sin to the cross that we deserved. Father, Holy Spirit, Son, Lord Jesus, if there's one here who has not believed that message, may they believe it today. May they turn to Christ today. And for those of us who have, may we find new causes for rejoicing and worship around it. May we love You all the more. May we obey You all the more out of a heart of gratitude and worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.